Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. I'm your host, Court Dunn. Join us as we talk to writers about their work, their process, and what it means to be a writer. Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. Today's guest is John Patton Ford. John is a writer and a director who went to school for directing. His thesis film, Patrol, premiered at the 2010 Sundance Film Festival and made the shortlist for the 2011 Academy Awards. He's now a writer of feature films. John, how are you? I'm doing well, man. Not bad. How are you guys doing? We're doing good. I want to say you're based on the West Coast, as some of our recent guests have been. Is that true? That is true. I'm in Los Angeles. What is going on in Los Angeles right now? Right now, there's a massive migration of butterflies in Los Angeles, and that is true. Really? Yeah. It, there's this thing that happens every like 10 years or something called the super bloom. I, d- I wish I could tell you more about what it means, but it's like a bunch of plants are blooming and they're like tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of butterflies. It's bananas. And you're like driving through these butterflies as you... Yeah. Yeah. It's wonderful. It's like the cutest infestation you could possibly have. Did you grow up in LA? I'm originally from South Carolina, from okay. a small town in South Carolina called Sumter. And uh, it's... There's not a lot there. You really shouldn't go. It's like the mobile home capital of, of the world. Oh, wow. Actually, I think that's factually correct. I think there are more mobile homes there per capita than like anywhere. I'm not trying to brag. And you chose to go to LA as opposed to New York, even though New York was a little closer. Is there a reason why you chose that city? God, uh, confusion. Um, not knowing what to do. I, yeah, I um, My vision of New York was always that I just couldn't afford to live there, whether that's true or not. Um, I don't know. Coming from South Carolina, I just assumed that I couldn't, I couldn't swing it. You know, looking back, I probably could have, like, just sleep on someone's floor. You know, but uh, I got into AFI. I got into the American Film Institute, which is the film school that I really wanted to go to more than I wanted to go to like NYU or some other place. AFI is kind of discipline specific. You can go there for cinematography or editing or writing or directing. It's the school I really wanted. So when I got in there for grad school. I kind of packed it in, you know, when I was 24 and just headed out. So that's how that happened. You mentioned confusion between going to New York and LA. And I think that might be an interesting theme, so to speak, because we did talk about before we started the podcast, writing shorts and aspiring filmmakers and like what direction to go. Do you go to the festival route? I would love to kind of cover that whole philosophy and kind of, you know, find out how relevant all of that is today, because I know things change. Things have changed. Yeah. God, I could talk forever about that and just bore you to tears. No, it's um, not boring at all. Let's, let's talk about yeah. it. Yeah. So that's, gosh, where do you even start? I mean, first off, I come from a place where there's no film industry. There are no filmmakers. I wanted to make movies, but like, what do you do? You know, like, there's no one to talk to you about it. If you want to be a doctor or an attorney or anything, you can like track someone down and talk to him and get some information. But like being a filmmaker, you know, what do you do? And so there was a real lack of data for me. And I was reading books, you know, like Spike Lee wrote all these great books about filmmaking. And um, I remember reading the book that Darren Aronofsky published about the making of Pi, which is actually a terrific book. He published his journal from when he was making a movie. And it was reading that journal that I discovered that uh, Aronofsky had gone to film school and he had gone to AFI in L.A., only later did I discover that he has pretty much zero good things to say about the school, but I didn't, <laughs> I didn't know it. So for me, like I went to undergrad in South Carolina and I just, my whole goal was to get a bachelor's degree without going into debt. Um, I didn't really have, 
a ton of money to go to school. So my goal was just do it for free, you know, um, which I did. And then after school, I found this like technical college in Charleston, South Carolina. And I heard that this technical college had just a room full of camera gear. They had all these 16 millimeter cameras. I remember reading that they had a brand new SR3. This was in 2006, five, six. So it was right before you could get like a decent prosumer HD camera, you know? So I thought like, oh, I'll go down there and I'll shoot, I'll learn how to shoot film and I'll make some short films. And uh, I remember, <laughs> uh, yeah, so I, I like applied to this technical school just so I could use their gear and make little movies. And it was this rich time of learning, I think, you know, I was like 22, 23, tons of energy, just working at a restaurant and then taking film classes at a technical school and then renting their gear and shooting stuff with my friends. And um, I don't know if you guys have had that experience, but just the experience of writing it and shooting it yourself and kind of lighting it yourself and then editing it yourself, you just learn this massive, massive thing um, about the entire process that I can't even summarize, you know, it's so many things. I was also watching a lot of movies at this time, you know, like it was this kind of, <laughs> I remember it was uh, when Blockbuster was still a thing. So like, never heard uh, of it. Sorry. Heard of it, yeah. So it was like the dying days of Blockbuster. And to compete with Netflix, Blockbuster had this program called Blockbuster Online. And I discovered this loophole where like you could order two DVDs online and they'd come to your house and then you could go to Blockbuster and trade in these DVDs for two more actual DVDs. That was a weird And then when you went and traded those back in, two more would arrive from online. So you could essentially pay for one DVD and get endless DVDs. Yeah, I was like... um, I was like Adam Sandler and Punch Drunk Love with the pudding. Like I just figured out this loophole that just gets you endless stuff. Um, so I watched a ton of things, made a ton of movies. I used those movies to apply to AFI in LA, which felt like this whole other expensive elite world that you know surely would not want to have anything to do with me. But then I got in, and I was like floored that I got in, you know. And I'd never been to the West Coast. I'd never seen the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> But I was like, fuck it, I'm doing it. And I took out student loans, and um, which felt like the scariest, most sickening thing. I can't even put it into words. I, I couldn't believe I was doing it. You know, my whole family was like, you're, you're absolutely batshit. Or, you know, you're screwed. But I did it. And I came to LA and went to AFI. It was the best. It was the first time in my life I'd ever been around peers, you know? And I didn't realize it until I was like 24, 25. I was like, oh, oh, you guys are just as ambitious. and focused and like hardcore about this as I am. I've never been around people like that. I was always trying to like hassle my friends to help me make movies and nobody ever wanted to, you know? So as you mentioned, I made a short film when I was at AFI that um, got into Sundance and that just felt like the dream, you know? That was like, man, if you could get a short film on a Sundance, the rest of your life will just be fucking perfect, you know? I couldn't believe we got in. It just felt like the odds are so staggering, but we, you know, we did it. It was like, wow. And uh, went to Sundance. I met some agents, I met some managers, all these people who were like, we're going to help you do this, you know, we're going to help you start your career. It doesn't get any better than this, right? When you're 26, seven years old. And they were like, okay, you got to go write a script now, write a feature script, and we'll get you in some rooms and we'll, we'll help you get it together. Amazingly, at this point in my life, I had never written a single feature script. In a way, I'd never had time, you know? I was like doing all this other stuff and learning how to shoot and learning all the technical stuff, but... And so I thought, like, well, I'll, do, I'll pull that together. How hard can that be? You know, <laughs> as you guys know, it's the hardest thing. 
it's the thing that nobody can do. And uh, so I went, I wrote my first feature. I gave it to my agents. They never talked to me ever again. Oh, wow. Ever. I still have never talked to them. Manager fucked off as well. And suddenly I was oh God, 28 years old, I guess, at this point with $92,000 of student debt. And I was working catering, catering, food delivery, working in restaurants. And I, at that point, I felt like I'd made this horrible mistake with my life, you know? And I really regretted ever having gone to film school, ever having tried anything. It just felt like such a miscalculation. I was considering trying to flee the country. There were times, there was actually <laughs> time when I was like, if I go to Japan and do this teaching program, can I like somehow get out of paying student loans? And the answer is like, no, there's basically nothing you can do. This is when I started to write because I couldn't really do much of anything else. I did get the opportunity to shoot some really small commercials, but like they weren't big, cool commercials. They were just kind of little crappy things that you fast forward on YouTube. So I started writing and I just wrote script after script after script. And then finally I wrote this script called Rothschild that I had no intention to direct. I just wrote it and all these people read it. It became like a viral thing and it got on the blacklist. It was like at the top of the blacklist oh, in wow. 2014, I guess. And then just like everything changed like immediately. Like suddenly people saw me as someone with skills and that led to a writing job and that led to another writing job. And I can't even remember what your original question was. I'm sorry. I just went on and on and on. But that's the long version of how I went from short films yeah. to being a writer. So you we basically, get- uh, you, you followed the exact path that every filmmaker fantasizes about. You started making films. You went to AFI, you got into Sundance, you met an agent, you wrote a feature script, but then it didn't end up panning out to be what you expected it to be. Does that imply that that is not the route? Is that still a valid route for aspiring screener? Or is that an outdated way of thinking? I mean, it depends on your goals. If you're someone who just wants to work as a writer, there's a ton you can learn from making short films, but they're also expensive to make and they're time consuming. And I think if you know that you want to write, just write. Just read scripts and watch movies and write. If I had started doing that at a younger age, you know, I wouldn't be in my mid-30s now and talking to you about this. I would have figured it out younger. You know, I would have hacked how to write a feature script younger. But if you want to be a filmmaker, I, I feel like, yeah, definitely start making shorts, you know, and just go for it and make a ton because that's how you learn. But everybody has their own, their own pathway into it. I can tell you the world of short films, I think, is probably a lot different now than 10 years ago when I was in school because of just how much stuff there is online, you know? I think if you get into a big festival like Sundance or something, then like, okay, a lot of people will see your stuff and you can meet reps and things. But beyond that, I think, I think the world of the student film is kind of a, a different thing. Sorry, I feel like I'm rambling now. Do those dream scenarios happen anymore where you get a film into a film festival and maybe you meet an agent like you did? And then you get this deal or, you know, you get to pitch this movie and then suddenly you're, you know, the next hot director. (laughs) Yeah, totally. I mean, it's never happened for a lot of people, but yeah, those things happen all the time. But I think the important thing to remember is that the people for whom that happens are usually people who have already engendered the ability to write a feature script. Take someone like me, for instance, I thought I was doing everything right. You know, I was trying to be like Kari Fukunaga. I was going to have a short film at Sundance and then write a feature and get into the labs and then make that. That was the plan. And then I realized that I had just left this major, major ingredient out of the mix. I had never learned to write feature. And then take Damien Chazelle, for instance, who had a short film at Sundance, I think maybe in 2012 or 13. And at which point he, he had the feature ready to go. And at that point, he'd already written a 
shitload of features. He's written a ton. He's a monstrous screenwriter. You want to talk about why that guy is where he is because of writing, because he can write something and people get stoked on it. And so it's like, yeah, he made a short film and that helped, but he had all of the gear ready to go to exploit all that interest from the short film, you know? And for a minute, if he had made the short film Whiplash and it's as great as it is, and then they're like, let's see the script. And he was like, oh, I actually have no ability to do that yet. Right. Wait six years. <laughs> Wouldn't have happened. Would you say there's a, a number of uh, scripts you should have worked on before you really get to a point where you're kind of ready? I know that we've heard that a lot from our guests, like when in doubt, just keep writing, keep writing, write as much as you can. Yeah. There's not like a magic number, but I can tell you for me, it took, it took me completing about five scripts before I felt like I really kind of had the hang of it, five or six. And of course, among those five or six are just dozens of others that you don't complete, you know, but beginning to end, like for me, it was like, like, right, like right after Sundance, I wrote a feature version of the short that I had made that like sucked. Like I didn't understand structure yet. I didn't understand all these basic things. I was a short filmmaker. And then I wrote another that was a little bit better and another that was a little bit better, but I was still kind of holding myself back and thinking about production, thinking about what I can make. And then finally, my, some friends of mine were like, why don't you just write something that you know you'll never make? Just let your imagination just, just go with it, you know, and just entertain yourself. That had never occurred to me. Like writing always felt like work, you know, it felt like, okay, I got to follow these structures and think really hard about how to check all these boxes. And, you know, oh, I read the book that so-and-so wrote. I got to do all the stuff that he or she said. And suddenly I sat down and wrote this script that was just fun, you know, that just made me smile. And it was like, boom, all these doors opened. And I think it was just because if you're having a good time writing something, chances are other people may also have a good time reading it. And you got to learn to listen to that, that joy. You know, it's so informative. That's, it's a thing you got to learn to listen to. So you said that, you know, you had met a manager or an agent, so to speak, and then you sent the script and you didn't hear back from them. How did you get to that point where you said, <laughs> you know, to now you're writing a major motion picture? That's a huge, yeah. huge gap. How do you bridge that yeah. gap? Do tell. Yeah. Um, I can tell you exactly how. So at that point, yeah, sent a bad script to my agents. They were like, fuck this guy. <laughs> yeah, I was at just rock bottom for like, years dude for like three four years and finally i wrote this script that was good although i didn't know it was good at the time i actually thought it was bad because it seemed indulgent it had voiceover it seemed a little adolescent um it was just dumb fun i loved writing it i loved reading it but i thought well this isn't a serious movie you know and um i had managers at that point and i want to be clear about that i randomly got this phone call from these two guys who were like starting a management company and they were like my age and they repped nobody. And it was like, yeah, they're managers, but I might as well have just like called up some of my friends and said, Hey, will you guys be my managers? Like they didn't have much of anything to offer at that point besides just willpower. So when I wrote the script that was like kind of decent, I gave it to them and it became not just my bargaining chip, but their bargaining chip. And I learned a big lesson about who you want to work with. A lot of people want big, fancy managers and agents. Um, a lot of those people don't have time for you, you know, when you're young and broke. But these guys had all the time in the world because they needed me to be successful so they could be successful. So when I gave them that script, they sent it to some people they knew around town. And those people sent it to others. And those people sent it to others. And I learned that 
when you write a script that resonates with people, it can kind of go viral, sort of like a video. And people just email it. Um, it usually has to do with the concept of the script more than the writing itself. Just think about it. Like if you got an email and there was a script attached and the email was like, yo, the script is so well written, read it. Okay. But then if you got an email with a script attached, the email was like, check out this insane biopic of Martha Stewart and it's about her trial and how insane she is. You'd be like, ooh, okay, might want to check this out. The second email told you nothing about the quality of the writing. It just sold you on a concept. I think that's what did it. The script had a really fun concept to it and it piqued people's interest before they had even peaked at the document itself. So my manager sent that around and it became this thing that was like bigger than me. It was kind of beyond my control. Like suddenly all these people read it and had all these different ideas and everyone had their own agenda about it. And I started going to meetings. I hadn't really been to meetings at that point, but I'm sure you guys have had other guests who've talked about like the water bottle tour in LA. You go from production company to production company and they offer you a water. That's what it's called now. This was in 2014. I remember I kept a Google spreadsheet of all the meetings I went to. I went to 113 meetings over the course of nine months. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was nuts. And most of those meetings are what they call general meetings where you just go and like meet people. Hey, how's it going? And they tell you about what projects they have. And it's kind of confusing if you don't know how Hollywood works. So people will say like, oh, we just got the rights to this book. And you're like, okay, what does that mean? Well, that means that they're looking for writers to adapt that book. That's what that means. So people started giving me books, magazine articles, all these things, hoping that I might create a pitch based upon it and then come back and throw my hat in the ring to be the writer. So out of all those meetings, I found one project that I really, really liked that I really wanted to write. So yeah, I I went back and I pitched on it and they gave me the job. I got into the WGA, I got health insurance and um, suddenly, kind of quickly, almost violently, it was like, your old life is over. You're not really directing stuff anymore. You're going to have to prioritize this and focus on this. That is how that transition happened. And then how did you kind of work your way to, to Disney specifically, to this current job? Sure. Um, did that happen? Uh, that original script that I wrote that ended up getting on the blacklist has sustained me kind of through the years. It's been the one thing that I've written that everyone seems to have read. And so I can still kind of trade off the the value of that in a way. So after I wrote a script for Sony, I wrote this other thing for Universal and then this other thing somewhere else. And then, and then my agent was like, hey, Disney read that script that you wrote a couple years ago, the Blacklist thing. They've always kind of liked it and wanted to find something to work on with you. And there's kind of the perfect project you should go and pitch on it. And it turned out to be like the most difficult job to get that I'd had yet. I think because Disney is so rigorous you know like they never really mess up that bad <laughs> you know like they always win they just bought fox who buys fox like that's a, such a gangster move so when that opportunity came up i got my act together in a way that i hadn't before you know i read all the materials i came up with a pitch that was far more thorough than any i'd done before and um i think i ended up having to pitch it like 13 different times and every time i'd go in they'd give me notes they'd be like change this this and this like, all right, um, I'm not on the payroll, dude. This is free right now. <laughs> and I am going broke. I need a job. So I kept going back and going back and repitching and repitching. And then, uh, and then finally I got the gig. And uh, it's been fun. The Flickering Myth Podcast is a source for all of the weekly entertainment news that we could possibly be bothered to talk about. Tune in every Tuesday for a roundtable discussion featuring a host of Flickering Myth writers and contributors. 
You can find us on all your favorite podcatchers as well as right here at flickeringmyth.com, part of the Flickering Myth Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Alan Christian. I'm Gerald James. And I'm Lacey Day. And we host the Four Color Film Podcast. What do we do at the Four Color Film Podcast, Gerald? We watch and dissect every comic book-based film. Lacey, do you still like being here? Yeah, it's really great. (laughs) (laughs) You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify, and wherever else they have good podcasts and podcasts like these you sound like a kidnapping victim (laughs) also on the flickering myth podcast network at flickeringmyth.com along with other great shows check us out and check them out too thank you hell zane hell zane hell zane I've heard that pitching movies has gotten incredibly difficult these days. Like chances of you actually getting something picked up now as opposed to, you know, 20 years ago. They're looking for very specific things and uh, it's kind of a rat race, so to speak. Has that affected you? I mean, you've had success. Yeah, no, that's an interesting point. I mean, I wasn't around 20 years ago. I hear this stuff all the time. I hear older writers go like, ah, this is hell, (laughs) you know? And I'm like, really? And you worked at Hardee's? Because I did. Like, I don't know what they're talking about. I guess it was bad, but but like, I have no context for it. I can tell you that very few people sell original pitches now on the feature level. And very few people sell like feature spec scripts. People sell tons of TV. Like, that's where to do it now if you want to come up with original ideas. But features, I've made a living doing what they call OWAs or open writing assignments. So a studio will have some kind of material, like they'll have a book or a magazine article or a graphic novel. I will read that material and then I'll come up with my version of what that movie would be. And then I'll go in and I'll pitch that. And I've actually had like decent success with it. I've certainly had pitches that I did that I didn't get. Like I remember I pitched this adaptation of a book about the early days of MTV. Um, I pitched it to Brett Ratner's company a couple years ago. Again, how much have times changed? I don't think I've been there now. But I, I went in there and I pitched over and over and over again, like so many times. And like, it was kind of a slamming pitch. Like it was a good movie and it just didn't happen. You know, I think I found out after like eight pitches that their interest was kind of waning in the material in general because MTV just isn't as popular as it once was. So I had exerted all of that energy and spent all that time on something that would never exist, period. It wasn't as if they were going with a different writer. They just decided not to make a movie. It's those times when you go, man, writers kind of got it bad sometimes. Like, this, this is kind of nuts that I did this for free, and there's just no, there's no reward. But then again, the open writing assignment stuff I've gotten to do has been, like, super cool. You know? just depends on what you want. Is there a reason why you gravitate towards features as opposed to TV? It's a great question. The reason is I still want to, I'm still a director at heart, you know, like right now I'm putting together my first feature and we're kind of close, you know, and the world of TV feels so immersive. It feels like just not at a stage in my life in which I want to go live in a writer's room for months and months on end and have that be 
who I am, you know? Um, maybe if I had like kids or a mortgage or something like that, I'd be like, okay, let's go make some money. But right now I still like a life that can allow me time and flexibility to try to make my first film. That's really what's kept me in the world of features. That and the fact that it started with a feature. Like I started my career as a writer because of a feature script that I'd written. And that's how people kind of defined me. You know, that's how they saw me. That said, about a year ago, I had this idea for a TV show that I just couldn't stop thinking about. And I started kind of pitching it around and people responded well. And so I just went and wrote the uh, spec pilot and got it out there. We got an offer from Paramount and suddenly we're going back and forth with, with Paramount TV and we were about to close the deal. And then uh, Steve Zalen and Steven Spielberg created the exact same project oh, wow. at Amazon. Literally about the same event. Uh, it just ha- it was just horrible timing. What are the odds? It was like a Spanish conquistador Mayan epic uh, based on the experience of this one Spanish guy who oh, kept wow. a journal. And uh, um, that's been my one foray into TV. The fact that, I'll tell you the thing about TV, it's like once a TV pilot is dead, it's really dead, you know? Like once there's no network for it to go to, like, what do you do? Whereas a feature script can come back to life like Frankenstein in 10 years and somehow get made. Um, and because there's such a, there's so many different ways to get a feature made. So I guess what I'm saying is if I just wanted to be a writer and just focus on the writing, then I would go to TV. But because I'm someone who still entertains the idea of being a filmmaker and being a director, that's what's kept me in features. And what's the best case scenario? Obviously, you want to write and direct your own movie. I imagine that would require pitching that, getting funding for that. What's the end game here? The end game for me is to um, direct, but not to have to make it. I don't want to have to make a living as a director. I'd love to continue to make a living as a writer. It's just... Uh, how to explain that? Um, it's more flexible. I never want to be forced to direct a movie because I need the money. I've been on the other side of the table now, and I've seen directors come and pitch on things that I've written, and I just see people who whose hearts aren't really in the film. They just really need a job, and I don't want to be in that position. Uh, so the goal is to direct stuff that I that I like, but still have a writing career that's kind of the steady thing in my life. I can tell you right now. I so I wrote this script that I'm going to direct myself, and I got an actress attached who has like considerable value. I couldn't believe she wanted to do it. And then producers, I got some producer friends of mine on board. And like right now we're waiting to hear back from financing companies who I think I know what they're going to come back with, but we're not totally positive. So I'm juggling this with the writing career at the same time. And if we can get the financing for this movie, then I'm going to shoot it this summer. And that's going to be my life for like a year, you know, it's all to shoot it and cut it. And then, go through all the post-production and then hopefully a festival. And that's going to be a big chunk of my life, but I won't make much money off it at all. That's why I want to keep the writing career going, you know, because it's such a good thing to have. It's such a good thing to be able to do because you can do it from anywhere and you can do it on your own time. You know, that's the, that's the best, that's the dream scenario for me. You mentioned going back to the festival with a feature. Is there a higher percentage of success? Would you bring a feature to a festival as opposed to a short two pretty different worlds. I mean, a short film has no market value. You can't sell a short film. It's just a calling card. It's just something so people will know who you are. Whereas, let's say if I went back to Sundance with a feature film, it would be such a different experience because we'd be trying to sell it to a distributor. You know, it would be like, it would be like you, you really got to sell this thing or uh, you're kind of in trouble because some financiers want their money back. 
So it would be a radically different experience. But I hope to have it, you know? That would be the dream. Except this time, I can write a feature script. So this time, if I went to a festival with a feature that I've made, I could capitalize upon the opportunity. If people were curious about what I want to do next, I trust me, I have a smorgasbord of things and I have the ability to write them really quickly and I already have things that are finished that I'd want to do, you know? It just took me, it took me a while. I'm a late bloomer. You mentioned financing companies. It's something we've never talked about on the show. Yeah. How does someone find a financing company? How do you convince someone to give you money to create your project? Um, isn't it funny how mysterious people are about that? I can't tell you how long I wanted, I asked that same question. And no one seemed to be able to give me a straight answer. And they talk about finance, it's like they didn't want to tell you or something. It's so simple. Like, what? <laughs> what is the deal? Um, I'll tell you what we're doing right now. I wrote a script that can be made relatively inexpensively, and it's got a cool role in it. And I found this actress who has a specific value. So distribution companies will pay a certain amount of money for a movie that she's in, granted that the movie turns out well and you know is the script in a way that, that hasn't deviated in some massive way from the original document. So once you have that kind of value package, you can borrow against it. You can go to foreign sales companies. You can go to, I mean, there are a bunch of different financing companies. They may not be interested. It may not be their kind of movie. The risk may be too high. They may not want to work with you because you're a first-time director. That's a big deal. Or they may be interested, but they may not be able to put in as much money as you need. But the way that you get a financing outside of the studio is by actors. It's by having actors attached who are popular, who have fans, perhaps around the world. And uh, then you essentially borrow money based upon the value of those people. That's, I, I don't know how much simpler I can, I can explain that one. But so for instance, there's a company called Voltage that made uh, like the Hurt Locker, for instance. Uh, they're a foreign sales company. So you go to them with a script that already has actors attached to it who want to be in it. And then Voltage can look at that script and look at those actors and know within a blink of an eye for exactly how much they can sell that film for once they've made it. So if, if you give them something that has a couple actors attached and they look at it and they go, hmm, all right, this would cost probably $2 million to make. And I bet you we could sell it for four if it turns out well. That might be something we're interested in. That's how it works. There it is. You just told us the secret. Now all of our all of our listeners will have so much money to make their films. I hope. <laughs> no, That's the goal. I, would, I mean, the process is simple, but actually, the challenge is writing a piece of material that's good enough to net that kind of talent. So, is it easy? Well, the logistics of it are really clear, but can you get there? You know, do you have the piece of material to get there? So, tell us. You've heard your plan which sounds very feasible and valid, and you're already there. Tell us from those aspiring writers, filmmakers who are still in that short film, can you just draft up a plan, give us a suggestion on how they should get to where they need to be? Yeah, I mean, the first thing to do is just not let uh, the haters fucking hit you. <laughs> right. The amount of bad advice is staggering. People giving you advice when people start giving you advice, listen to them, absorb it, but then also think about who they are and where they're coming from. They may not really know, and they may be full of fears and insecurities that are very unproductive for you. You know, I would say make short films, but don't focus on them exclusively. 
also write features. That means you got to read features. So read feature scripts. And I'd go further. I'd say read feature scripts that have not been produced yet. When people read features, they oftentimes go back and read like, you know, Back to the Future or something. That doesn't count, man. You've already seen the movie. You're envisioning them. No, no, no. You need to read something you've never seen. That is how you identify what good writing is. Because if you read it and like it, think about how meaningful that is. You know, you had nothing to reference. So definitely, definitely, definitely learn to write. Because if people do start noticing you as a filmmaker, they're only going to be like, give us some material, you know, give us a script. Every single time. Nobody, nobody breaks as a director now. Nobody. I can think of one guy, <laughs> my friend Jordan, who made Kong Skull Island, is the only fucking dude I know who doesn't write scripts and never did. One out of thousands. And he's like a, he was like a funnier die video guy. So I would say learn to write. It's also really empowering as a filmmaker to have the ability to write. The directors who are working now who don't have that ability are kind of limited. Like they, they're limited to the material that they get. And they might not get good material. So they end up making movies that aren't that great. You mentioned Funny or Die, uh, which actually transitions perfectly into my next question. We live in an age where technology, you can just pick up an iPhone, you can pick up a DSLR camera and shoot your film and instantly distribute it on YouTube. Although things are changing, it's, it's a little bit harder to get seen on YouTube even now. Is that a valid way to come up, so to speak? Here's where I wish I had more expertise right now, because I'm not a young person in this world. It's been 10 years since I was in my, my mid-20s doing this. It seems that it's really crowded. It seems that getting noticed in that viral world is like needle in a paystack. So I don't, I don't quite know how to, what to say to that one. I would, I would think that like, if it were me, I would try to hack the system somehow by making a short piece of content that has some selling point in it, like someone in it who's already kind of established. Or I would try to write some short film for like a YouTube star who already has a following or something, you know? I would try to have some ingredient that could help my thing rise to the top. But the thing is, as accessible as the technology is now, writing a good story is no easier. It's not as if the technology has made the writing easier. You know, you can shoot something a little easier. You can make it look presentable a little faster and cheaper. But man, writing a story, a good one, it's just as hard as it ever was. So, gosh, what was the original question? <laughs> oh, you answered it. It was the YouTube question. But you're right. It's super oversaturated. Um, my next question is in regards to getting an agent. You have an agent. You've got an agent. How important is it? A lot of people kind of put the cart before the horse, so to speak, and say, oh, I need an agent or whatever. But is it even that important to worry about? Or should they just focus on writing a good story and, and you'll eventually get there? Yeah, I, I understand. Like, I know what it's like to be, to be that age and feel like, oh, I have no access. You know, I need an agent. I need someone to advocate for me. Like, I just know what that feels like. And if you're that person, know this. You actually don't. <laughs> you, may, you may think that you do, but you don't right now. Because if you had an agent, what could they possibly do for you? Unless you have some unbelievable piece of material that they can sell around town. Agents can't really do much of anything. They can't, they're just salesmen, you know? They're like car salesmen. So unless you have a car, 
the fuck can they do? You know? So I would focus on just writing, just creating some material, you know, just learning how to do it, thinking about concepts. I would get a hold of the blacklist and read every script on there. That's where the answers are. If you want to know what people are reading, the answers are out there. Read those scripts. That's what they're reading. And if you put together a piece of material that people respond well to, you'd be stunned how quickly suddenly people will be contacting you. And then you will need an agent to navigate that. But until then, like, it sounds cool to have an agent, but like, they just don't like here. I mean, like right after Sundance, I got, I got an agent, you know, a big agency. It was like, wow. And they couldn't do anything for me. They were like, yeah, we sent your short film to some people. They watched it. Like, great. (laughs) And then when I finally gave them a script and it wasn't really up to snuff, you know, I never heard from them again. So it's like, it's cool to have an agent once you can use it. But the other thing is like, once you have, if you're really young and you have reps, it kind of messes with you psychologically because you're going to start doing whatever they tell you to do. You know, your rep may tell you some nonsense like, oh, you know, TV pilots about uh, high school are really hot right now. You should write one. And then suddenly you're like, well, I never thought to do that, but I guess I should because, you know, so-and-so at WME told me like, no, no, don't do that. The thing you have to give is you your personal experience and your taste and who you are. That's what you have that no one else has. That's what you have a monopoly on. So if you have a rep, they can try really quickly to take that away from you and aim you in some direction that's going to be super non-productive. So um, yeah, if you're that young person who feels like, I need an agent, yeah, you, you probably don't. You probably need to um, focus on yourself and, and write. and. Um, Try to make something that that's you, you know. Is there one thing, uh, looking back at your own career, that you could have done differently that you would like to pass along to those listening, aspiring writers? Yeah, yeah. Not to repeat myself, I wish I'd started writing earlier. I think I was really intimidated by writing a feature script. In a way, like shooting short films felt way less intimidating, you know. But writing a feature just felt like, oh my god, a hundred and some odd pages. Like I get so hard to think about so much. I wish I'd ignored all that and just not judged myself and just gone for it. Like just open up a file on your computer and start making an outline. You don't even have to tell anyone. Like don't, don't tell anybody. Create no expectations and just have fun. Like entertain yourself. And before you'll know it, you'll have something that is complete. So yeah, I regret not doing that. I regret taking it too seriously, <laughs> letting myself be intimidated by it and not starting early enough. I have a friend named Matson Tomlin who's way younger than me. I think he might be like 28 or something. And he's, he's sold like a billion scripts now. He's been on the blacklist, I think, like seven times. Netflix just produced this feature that he wrote with like, uh, I think like Will Smith and some other people um, called Power. And I was so stunned that he had it so together so early you know and i've met with him and i've spoken with him and i i figured it out he just never judged himself and just wrote and entertained himself and had fun doing it never tried to follow a structure never tried to follow the rules never held himself accountable for you know some kind of violation of protocol and uh and here he is so i would say do that are you ready for what we call a series of seemingly random questions we'll keep them quick Okay, let's do it. First one. 
if you could take any writer to any fast food restaurant, which writer, which restaurant, and why? Well, it's, it's um, any writer to a fast food restaurant. I, uh, I would I would probably take uh, Frank Pearson to Kentucky Fried Chicken. Uh, Frank Pearson wrote Dog Day Afternoon. And uh, and I happen to think Kentucky Fried Chicken is completely delicious. I also heard that he pitched uh, that movie in a fast food restaurant to Sydney Lumet. So I'd want to hear all about that. Second question, the blacklist. You've talked about it a bunch. What's the secret to getting your stuff, your script seen on the blacklist? Um, write some high concept horseshit, basically. <laughs> Either a biopic, something about a serial killer, uh, something about a known person that the reader already has an investment in, and uh, fucking fill in the blanks. It's kind of a joke, but it's kind of not at the same time. Third question, you talked about the water bottle tour. Was there one bottle of water in all of your days, you know, pitching and going to studios that tasted the best? And that could, I could mean that literally yeah. or like from the experience itself. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, meeting at Annapurna, great water, great water. The water of uh, the Ellison family. I don't know if you guys know who that is, but she's um, Annapurna is a company that was founded by the daughter of Larry Ellison, who's just a massive billionaire in California. And it's a company that just finances movies kind of willy-nilly. It seems that they don't even seem to make a profit. And it's kind of like a Santa's factory. Either that or Bad Robot, which is J.J. Abrams' company, which is basically Disneyland. Like, it's a secret door. They give you, like, a secret code or something to get in there. And then you get inside, and it's just it's nuts. It's like F.A.O. Schwartz. It's like a toy store. And you sit down, and then they give you, like, all the stuff to play with. Like, I remember I sat down, and right beside me, sitting on a shelf, is Luke Skywalker's lightsaber. Like, the original one, just sitting there. But with a picture and everything. And then oh. they give you this, like, paper, and they're like, here, draw a picture. And we might frame it while you're waiting on your meeting. And so you're like drawing a picture. Oh, there was a guy playing the vibraphone in the corner, just randomly. <laughs> just Hollywood, ultra strange slash creative people who have a lot of money getting to be themselves on a really major level. So I'd say the water there tastes pretty good. Cool. Well, I think there's one last question. Uh, it's the most important one. Brace yourself. Yeah. Did you have fun today? Oh, I had a great time. I had a great time. I hope I didn't confuse you guys too much or oh, blab too much. Absolutely not. No, I think this was a super um, insightful episode. And I think it's one of those episodes where there's so many people, I think, asking these questions out there that I think it'll be very helpful. So really appreciate uh, your professional input on what people should do and how to you know, survive the confusion. I hope so. And this is a cool thing that you guys do, man. Congrats. Thanks, man. Congrats on your success as well. Did you want to plug anything? I know you've got the movie. You're working on right now. Is there anything else you want to shout out your Twitter handle? Oh no, I'm not that cool. I'm like barely on social media. So uh, uh, no. What would what would I plug? Um, wow. Uh, uh, see Cold War. It's pretty good, and that's pretty much all I got. Awesome. Thanks again. Uh, really appreciate it, John. All right, guys. Thank you. All right. Thanks, and thank you to our listeners. We hope to see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to The Writer Experience. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave a rating, a review, and a comment on iTunes. You can also check us out on Instagram at Writer Experience and Twitter and Facebook at Writer EXP. The Writer Experience is a Samurai Dinosaur production. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod.